All right, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. This morning we're going to be looking at the topic of stewards of grace. Um, and we're going to do things a little different. I'm going to pray right up front and we're going to, just, we're going to jump in. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. And so you know how I typically get with that. Um, and so since we're talking about stewardship, I'm going to try to be a good steward of your time. All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you so much again for your word and, and the freedom we have to be able to gather for this. And God, we uh, would be remiss to not say thank you um, to those who have served our country as well um, on this Veterans Sunday. And so we do want to thank you for that and thank you for them. And this morning, God, as we open your word together, we pray that we've come ready to hear from you, ready to see um, the grace that is shown through Christ and his work. God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. God, would our ears be ready to hear? Would our minds be ready to understand? And would our hearts be ready to receive the truths of who you are and who we are in you? So God, this morning, would you Make us aware of your grace so that our lives will continually be changed by who you are and what you've done. In Christ's glorious name, amen. In a day where so many teach that Christianity leads to lives of ease or prosperity, we need to carefully examine the scripture. We need to be able to ask, well, what does the Bible actually say, right? Like, because a lot of people are preaching a lot of messages, and we need to be able to step back and examine carefully what the Scripture says. And to be able to, to kind of back that up, I want to give you a quick understanding on why we say that. We believe a few things about the Bible. We believe that the Bible is um, inerrant, meaning that in its original languages, it is without error. And we preach and lead from the English Standard Version, which is a translation from the original languages. So we believe that the Bible is inerrant. We also believe the Bible is infallible, meaning there are no falsehoods. Because it is God's Word, we believe God to be true and the Scripture is true. We also believe that the Bible is inspired. In 2 Peter, Peter tells us, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because they were eyewitnesses with him of his majesty. And he goes on, he says, And it was men moved along by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God, speaking of the writing of Scripture. And we also believe that because this is God's word, that it is sufficient, completely and wholly and utterly sufficient for all of life. Meaning, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you're going through. The Word of God is sufficient for you. And it's because of that that we hold fast to the truth that many of the Reformers pushed primary, the truth of sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is our final authority. We can read books and we can hear people talk and we can hear theories, but ultimately it is the Bible that is our final authority. And so with that understanding, we ask the question, well, what does the Bible tell us? As you know, by now, 
And if you haven't been with us, we've been working through 1 Peter. Peter is writing to Christians who are going through a great deal of suffering and persecution. They've been dispersed. They've been scattered because of their faith. They're, they were forced to leave their homes, their lands, and they've been just separated. And he's writing this letter to them in order to encourage them and, and to comfort them during these trials. And what he does is he reminds them of the goodness of Christ. He reminds them um, that they are Christ's children, that they are the people of God. And he's been preparing and preparing and preparing them to be comforted through this word. And then he comes to chapter 4 and he points them to grace. Now, it's clear in Scripture that the people of God will face trouble. This is not news to us. You hear me say this all the time. But the people of God will face trouble. James writes in chapter 1 of his letter, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's a lot of obscurity to that verse. And it probably leads most of us to ask this question, how in the world can I face trials with both steadfastness and joy? I mean, because most of us, if we're honest, are not looking at trials seeing how much joy we can get out of. And most of us don't want to necessarily push through them. We want them to be over. But he says, count it all joy, my brothers. So how can I face trials? How can I face storms of life and the troubles that we will face as the people of God? How can I do that? The answer is simply grace. And today, as we work through part of chapter 4, we will see this. That it's grace that saves that is, it redeems us from sin and the effects of sin. And grace also leads us. It leads us in the way of righteousness. It leads us to righteous living. To live lives knowing that if we have surrendered ourselves to Christ and His salvation, then we have been set free from the bondage and the stronghold of sin. God no longer sees us then as sinners, but he sees us in the same way he sees the Son arrayed in righteousness. So I want us to think about this as we work through the beginning of chapter 4. That God's grace both saves from sin and leads to righteous living. And to do that, the very first point that we come across is that grace saves. Again, understanding the context of Peter's writing allows us to identify with his message. Understanding that he's writing to people who are suffering greatly allows us to identify with them. Because the reality is, is all Christians, all people face suffering. Just as these Christians faced suffering as the people of God, if you passionately pursue Jesus, you will too. And so what I want to let you understand is that the same hope and the motivation that Peter is giving to these Christians is the same hope and motivation that we receive as well. 
And so he begins chapter 4 this way. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, I was always taught that when you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it therefore? So it is a preceding, there is a preceding thought that we're following. And so we need to ask, well, why? What is the thought? We actually go all the way back to chapter 2, starting in verse 20. Peter writes this. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, the Father, who judges justly. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And also last week in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. So he doesn't go back to just the last few verses of chapter 3. He goes all the way back. Since, therefore, Christ has suffered. In other words, he's reminding us that Jesus extends his grace to his people. He does that by showing us that Jesus was our great example. So yes, Jesus saves us from sin and, and, and its effects. But in this case, he's reminding them, listen, Jesus has given his life in the flesh as an example for you to follow. And in Jesus' atoning sacrifice, he not only accomplishes redemption, but he also shows us how to suffer well. So we don't follow a Savior who lived without pain, without trouble, without sorrow. We follow a Savior who also suffered the same way. Jesus suffered in the flesh, but notice how he suffered. He suffered humbly. He didn't fight back. He willingly laid himself down. Why? Because he trusted the Father's sovereign plan. I wonder today how many of us actually trust the Father. How many of us trust that God has a plan for our lives? It's easy to say we do, but if we were to step back and take stock of how we live the things we invest in, the time we spend? Are we truly trusting the Father to lead our lives? made a statement the last few weeks that we should trust Jesus not only to save us, but to lead us. If you find yourself answering that question, no, you don't trust the Lord, then I encourage you to do that today. 
There is no one greater, there is no one mighty, mightier, there is no one better than God. But if you're here and you're a Christian who has surrendered yourself to Christ, but maybe you're struggling with trusting Him in the moment, then I want to encourage you with the next statement. To arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, prepare your minds for action. Prepare yourself to live entirely for God's glory. And know this, that when you do, be prepared to suffer. You know, the message of following Christ is an obscure message. Nobody in their right minds wants to commit to something that's going to cause them to suffer. And yet the message of the gospel is constantly, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily. Let him deny himself and follow me. Let him suffer for my sake. As we pursue Christ and we pursue his glory, we should be prepared to suffer. We should be prepared to face persecution. We should be prepared to be maligned by the world. And here's the deal. When we do live this sort of life, when we live a life as a reflection of Christ and His glory, when we live in such a way to be absolutely and wholly devoted to Him and His plans, notice what he says at the end of verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. Attaining perfection is not capable this side of heaven. The only way we receive perfection is when we trust Christ and when we pass from this life into heaven and we receive our glorified self. We may be made completely whole by God. In this life, we receive Christ, we trust Christ, and we receive His righteousness, but we still fight the nature of sin within us. And so we continuously look to Jesus. We continuously rest in the work of the Spirit. So it doesn't mean we're perfect, but what it does mean is that our hearts and our desires are radically changed. So then, if you are continuously living for yourself, but you're saying you're a Christian, there's a little bit of... something missing. So what does it look like then? Verse 1 again, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Not perfect, but, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but... For the will of God. Therefore, we live not for human passions, but for God's greater glory and faithful yet joyful obedience to Him. We live our lives for the good of others, pursuing Christ and the good of others. So, what does he mean by human passions? Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, 
passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, all of these can be summed up in lawless idolatry. We're idolizing ourselves, and we're living in complete and utter rebellion towards God and His law. And so what we do is we live all of life trying to please self. Sensuality, orgies, obviously speak to sexual sin. We, we want to please ourselves in a way that doesn't honor God, but pleases the human nature. Passions, that is anything that we pursue greater than God. If I am pursuing my job more than I am pursuing Jesus, that is my passion. If I am pursuing a dollar more than I am pursuing Christ and His glory, that is my passion. If I am pursuing people and to be, please, and to be pleasing to people, that's my passion, not God. If I'm pursuing my favorite sports teams, that is my passion. If I am pursuing trophies and awards and acceptance from the world, that is my passion. And he says drunkenness and drinking parties. When we endure in these things to numb ourselves to reality instead of seeking Christ and being found resting in Him, we are walking in lawless idolatry. Now here's the thing. We miss this in the English language. But in the original, what he's saying in verse 2 and 3 is actually pretty emphatic. He's basically saying, listen, enough! Stop giving way to wickedness. Stop giving in to these things and pursue Christ. He has rescued you. He has redeemed you. So stop living for yourself. Your life is not your own. He's urging them to come back to the truth that it is God and God alone who saves and sets us apart. And then he follows it up with something that's pretty difficult. Look at verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. In other words, when you no longer are pursuing sin with the same group of people that you once pursued that sin with, when you change your life, when you radically give yourselves to other things, that is the things of God, when you start living in such a way as to tell those other folks that you normally would hang out with, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be involved in that. I don't want to be a part of that. I'm trying my best to pursue Christ and His glory. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be rejected and you're going to be hated. You're going to be called self-righteous. You're going to be called holier than thou. But here's the reality. Here's the question you need to ask. How then do I live? How do I respond as a child of God in those situations? You trust the grace of Christ. And you trust that God is a gracious and holy judge. Because we begin to understand my life is not my own. And so he tells them, listen, when you follow Christ, you're going to be hated. You're going to be maligned. 
But rest in this, verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We trust in the grace of Christ to save us and to lead us, and we trust the judgment and the holiness of God as a righteous judge. And we need to remember this truth, that it's the gospel that brings salvation, but the gospel also brings judgment. Because the fact that we are sinners in need of saving and a Savior comes to save us points us to the reality that we were still sinners. And sin is so horrible in itself and it's so wretched that God cannot look upon sin. And being holy and being righteous and being just, He must punish sin. Which is again why verse... 18 of chapter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. There's coming a day where we all will stand before God. And the only thing we will be able to present to him in which he will accept, is the righteousness of his Son. So if we have trusted in and received Christ, that's enough. If not, man, we can push to push our agenda, and we can push our accomplishments, and we can push any and every excuse we want under the sun. But in that case, and in that moment, we will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. The only thing that redeems sinners is the blood of Christ. The only thing. And every one of us will stand before God and we will give an account. Now notice what happens as he moves further into verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. That is an obscure verse, and a lot of people take that to believe that there's going to be some sort of second chance. That once we die, we're still going to have the opportunity to hear the gospel preached to us. That is not what he's saying here. What he's actually saying is that the gospel had been preached to them while they were alive. You need to remember, according to Romans 1, there is no excuse. There is no one with a right to say they never saw or heard of Christ. There are no second chances. When you breathe your last, that's it. And so what Peter is urging these folks and what we want to make sure you hear. To take care and to seek Jesus now before there is no time left. We've all heard people say that they're going to wait to follow Christ as they mature a little or accomplish this, and and then they're going to... That day may never come. 
We're never promised tomorrow. We're never promised the next breath. We're never promised the next second. And when life is gone, that's it. See, time is short. Life is fleeting. And so if you're here today and you never truly received Christ for salvation, I urge you to repent of your sin and to trust the living God. He is the only hope you have. And maybe you want to say, I've got to get some stuff right. No, that's not how this works. You can't get right without Christ. You come to Christ first and He changes you. You can't get cleaned up and you can't get right in order to come to God. There is no righteousness in ourselves. It is God and God alone that can save. Maybe you're here and and you are a Christian and you have received Christ, but you're just kind of in a rut. Repent of that. And start living for Christ now. Live as if you have nothing else to live for. Because here's the thing. You have nothing else to live for. You pursue God and His greater glory. That's it. You say, how can you say that when God gives us a family? And when God gives us kids? and when God? Because the greatest thing you are here to do is to glorify God. And if you're not glorifying God in your personal life, then you're not going to glorify God in all these other things. And I can assure you, when you stand before God and you push, well, I had a healthy family and I had kids who did well in school and we accomplished this and we won this and we achieved this. God doesn't care about that stuff. He doesn't care about your pleasure and your happiness. He cares about your salvation and your holiness. I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards. He was known for putting together these resolutions, (laughs) these statements, and this is one. He says, Resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. How many stories have we heard of people on their deathbed saying they wish they would have played one more game or they wish they would have went to one more concert or they wish they would have worked a few extra hours or they wish they would have saved a little bit more money? None. But what we hear time and time again are people who said, I wish I would have done more for the Lord. I wish I would have spent more time studying the word of God. I wish I would have spent more time in prayer. I wish I would have told my family more about the graciousness of Christ. Resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. The motive for that is the saving grace of Christ. Knowing that we in and of ourselves are utterly and completely hopeless. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's Christ and Christ alone. And here's the thing. Grace doesn't just save, it also leads. And as we move forward, we need to ask the question, okay, well, if that's the case, okay, so Christ saves me. How then should I live? Look at verse 7. It says, the end of all things is at hand. 
Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. How then should I live with eternity in view? As if the end of all things is at hand. As if there is no time left. We need to remember what our purpose for living is. Our purpose for existence is because God wanted us here. God wanted us here to give Him glory. So our purpose for life is God's glory, not our pleasure. Now, we can obviously enjoy life as we pursue Jesus. But pleasure in and of itself is not the goal. Joy is not the goal. God is. And we know that when we pursue God, that's where we find pleasure. That's where we find joy. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. They're not divided. You don't seek joy and find God. You seek God and you find joy. That must be the root. And so Christians should live with eternity in view. See, when God is the goal, godliness will follow and our lives and our minds will be on things that are above. So again, we ask, well, what does this look like practically speaking? He gives us some examples. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another earnestly, continually, constantly. It doesn't stop. Like We don't stop just because, because someone disagrees with us. We don't stop loving because they make us angry. We don't stop because they might have undercut us or cheated us or done us wrong. We don't stop. We continue to love as Christ has loved us. Because I can tell you there is nothing that anyone can do to you that is worse than the sin you have committed against God. And Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. See, true love sacrifices itself for the good of others. So with that in mind, we need to understand that your, you need to understand, I need to understand that our lives cannot be lived to serve you, to glorify you, to please you. You and I live for Christ and when we live for Christ, we will live for others. Commenting on this section, Sam Storms writes, Love must never be half-hearted, weak, or self-serving. It must be concentrated, focused, and faithful. Did you hear that? Love can never be half-hearted, weak, or self-serving. It's not love if it's self-serving. It's not love if you're doing it just so you can receive in return. No, it must be concentrated, focused, and faithful. Do you understand what faithful means? That means you press on even in the greatest moments of adversity. How do we know that that's what it means? Because God is ever faithful to us. And we give Him more then enough reasons to stop loving us, and he doesn't. He never gives up. He never stops. He never leaves. He never forsakes. 
church, when we love like this, we can more graciously endure when we're sinned against or when we go through great suffering. How can Jesus undergo such hatred and pain and rejection on the way to Calvary? Because he loved those people more than they would ever understand. It is love that kept him from retaliating. And he has loved us with an everlasting, unending love. Are there people that are going to do you wrong? Yes. Are there going to be people that let you down? Of course. Are there going to be church family members that let you down and do you wrong? Yeah. But you don't stop loving. Because it says, love covers a multitude of sins. So practically speaking, we love one another earnestly. But notice what he says in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. God's people are to be a hospitable people. We are to share our lives, our homes, our families, our resources, everything we have for the benefit of others. The Bible tells us that we should outdo one another in showing honor. That we should work this way in order to stir one another up towards love and good works. And here's the truth. It can be hard. Hospitality is hard. I'm not talking to entertainment, right? It's not HGTV, we're do it, we want to design it this way, we want to build it this way in order to entertain. No, hospitality. Letting people into our lives, letting people use our stuff, letting people even sometimes take advantage of us for the good of their souls. It's hard work. It's exhausting sometimes. And there are days we just don't want to do it. But what does he say? He doesn't just say show hospitality to one another. So show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I feel like if there's one part of this section that would just completely gut us, it's that. Because it's easy to love somebody occasionally and it's easy to show hospitality at times. When it gets hard, if you're like me, and there are many of these days, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it and I don't want to be happy about it. But that's not what the Word of God tells us to do. Without grumbling. How's this possible? It's only possible when we realize that we're saved by, transformed by, and motivated by the grace of God. And what makes all of that possible is what we read in the very part, the very beginning of verse 7. To keep in view that the end of all things is at hand. Time is fleeting. Time is running out. So we love earnestly, and we show hospitality, 
And lastly, we serve. Look at verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Every Christian is called to serve. Why? Jesus served. We are said to be and called to be imitators of Him as beloved children. Jesus served. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus washed the disciples' nasty feet. Jesus gave his life. Jesus cared for people when he was tired. And here's what we have to know. We're not in this alone. We're not doing it completely on our own power. See, because God not only calls us into salvation if we receive him, but he also equips his people, his saved people with gifts. Every Christian is given a spiritual gift, at least one. Every one of you, if you are a proclaimer of Christ and have trusted Christ, have been given a spiritual gift. Some of you, most of you, probably multiple. And those gifts are to be used for God's purposes and God's glory. And they are used to build his church. They are used to continue building his kingdom. They are used to make much of God and to serve other people. You've heard me say it many, many times that even though we are a small church, we believe that God has given us all we need to accomplish all he wants to accomplish in us. The question is not the equipment. We have the equipment. The question is, are we using it? Right? Are we being faithful and good stewards of what God has given us? Are we using the gifts that he has given Sometimes, even though it might be a gift, doesn't mean we want to use it. Some of us might be gifted to teach, and we just don't want to teach. It takes time to study and to prepare. It takes extra time. Like, if I sign up to teach, that means I can't miss when I don't feel good, <laughs> right? Or, or if I have a gift of, you name it. If I'm not faithfully using those gifts, then I'm not being a good steward of God's grace. On Wednesday nights, we're going through Don Whitney's work, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. And two weeks ago, we talked about serving for the purpose of godliness. And I want to read you a quote. It's kind of a collection of quotes um, that he gave us in that chapter. He says, Serving God is not a job for the casually interested. It's costly service. God asks for your life. He requires that service to Him become a priority, not a pastime. We'll stop there for a second. When I hear the word pastime, I immediately think of one thing. So let's, I wanna, let's do something that I don't normally do. When you hear the word pastime, what do you think of? Baseball, yes. See, I mean, that America's favorite pastime, right? Or something. 
That's only because football apparently wasn't started yet. But we immediately think of baseball. Now, let's think about this in real-world scenarios. Baseball is just going to be the scapegoat here. All right? It could be baseball, it could be football, it could be softball, it could be soccer, it could be hunting, it could be fishing, it could be work, it could be you name it. Like You fill in the blank, okay? What happens, and one of the things that's probably the most crippling to the American church is that our priority has become our pastimes, or our pastimes have become our priority, instead of Christ and His church, doing His work, His way for His glory. And what happens is when that, when that takes place, we are giving in to what He said earlier, those human passions, right? We have given over to passions and to lawless idolatry. So when Christ is not the goal, when God is not the goal, we can't serve well because we're only worried about serving ourselves. He goes on, he says, he doesn't want servants who offer him leftovers after their other commitments. Sound like the American church? And serving God isn't a short-term responsibility either. His kingdom will never end. Most of the time, our service should spring simply from our love for God and love for others. Now, if we understand that His kingdom will never end, that, that the responsibility of serving as Christ has served us is one that never ends, then when we get exhausted for serving Christ and serving Christ's people, we understand that we still have the motivation to keep going because He never stops. It could probably be pretty exhausting. It probably is pretty exhausting for the King of glory to love me. I screw up daily. I'm not easy to love. My wife is a champion. But my God is much greater. He goes on, he says, How can any professing Christian think it acceptable to sit on the spiritual sidelines and watch others do the work of the kingdom? Any true Christian would say that he or she wants to obey God. But we disobey God when we do not actively serve Him. We sin when we refuse to serve God. See, it's the grace of God in Jesus that saves us. That is, it redeems us from sin and the effects of sin. And it's the grace of God then that leads the people of God, that is those who have received Christ and trusted Christ for salvation, it leads us into lives that reflect both the nature and the character of God. Here, we love earnestly. We're hospitable. And we serve without bounds. Why? Because Christ suffered in the flesh. So in other words, those who surrender to God's saving grace in Jesus then become stewards of His grace. So if you're here today and you've never 
surrender to God's saving grace? I urge you to do that. And you might be saying, dude, you just said if I do that, then I'm going to suffer. That I've got to love people I don't like. That I've got to serve people I don't want to serve. That I've got to sacrifice things I want to take a part of for somebody else's good. But what happens is, is when you surrender to Christ, your heart is radically changed. And whereas right now you're saying those things sound terrible, when you trust Christ and he gives the Holy Spirit to live within you, all of a sudden you begin to say, bring it on. I'm ready. Because God loved me enough to sacrifice his son so that I could live. Let's pray. Father, Would you continually, through the work of the Spirit and the Word of God, change our hearts to trust you, to love you, and to serve you so that others would come to faith in you. In Christ's name we pray.